chorus or hymn to prepare us for our message than the one that was just done. Thank you very much, Matt. We continue in our series entitled Our Comforter, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian. And we sang a song talking about, Lord, take my life, all of me. Well, really, that is the Spirit-filled life that we'll be talking about today. And I encourage you to use your Bibles or your uh, iPhone, whatever you use for your Scripture reading, and take that out and use also the worship folder. There's an outline there for you, as well as the Scripture, if that is needed as well. It's so important to follow the Scriptures to see what they have to say. And I've made every attempt this morning to let the Scriptures speak uh, as clearly as possible about the Spirit-filled life. We hear a lot about that idea, and I'd like to talk with you what I believe the Scriptures say about that kind of life, to have your life dominated, ruled by Christ. You see, God has filled our lives with all spiritual blessings, And one such essential blessing is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit-filled life is a walk. It's a walk with purpose and with power. The Spirit is constantly working within us to conform us into the likeness of Christ. So as we are walking by faith throughout life, The Spirit is guiding and directing us in the path of righteousness. That's the path that the Lord leads us on. Our walk, therefore, should be consistent with our talk. The church often talks a lot about its faith, but it is essential that our walk is consistent with our talk. And it's the Holy Spirit who enables us to live the life that Christ called us to. For apart from Christ, we can do nothing. So as we exchange our life for His life, then the Spirit keeps filling us with His love and His grace. The Spirit-filled life is the exchange. The exchange of our lives and receiving the life of Christ by means of his Holy Spirit. Our text this morning is from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. But I'd like to take first part of that text in verses 15 through 17. And we're going to see that these verses talk about the Spirit-filled life. That it, this Spirit-filled life comes by walking By the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's what we find. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of your time. Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will Of the Lord is. In these verses, we'll find exhortations, exhortations 
about the spirit-filled life. And Paul begins with this exhortation. It's a warning. Look carefully how you walk. Some translations may say, walk circumspectly. This means to order our steps through life carefully, guardedly, cautiously, and diligently so we don't step intentionally or unintentionally into a sinkhole of sin and end up in a world of hurt. In other words, Paul is clearly calling us to a new way of life, a new way of life in Christ. We are to walk worthy of our calling. We are not to walk aimlessly, but purposefully. We are not to walk in darkness, but we are to walk in the light. We are not to walk in hatred or anger, but in love and peace. We are not to walk with unnecessary guilt, but in freedom. We are not to walk in despair, but in hope. We are no longer to walk as fools, but to walk wisely. We're not to live like those who do not know Christ. But because we do know Christ, we have an eternal purpose in mind, and we should keep that in mind. That's what Paul is talking about. The fool, however, lives for immediate satisfaction in diminishing pleasures of sin that ultimately end up with life-devastating consequences. The fool rejects the wise counsel of the godly for the advice of sinners who have squandered away their lives. The fool walks the path paved with good intentions, but he never arrives anywhere. He gets easily distracted by the attractions of the world along the way that he is walking. And the sad thing about the fool that you will discover in the scriptures, in particular the book of uh, Proverbs, is that the fool never learns from his mistakes. He repeats them over and over again. He keeps going back to the same old watering holes to drink the same poison and wonders why his life is a mess. Paul, therefore, is urging us not to walk in lockstep with the values of this world, but walk in the power or the lockstep of the power of the Holy Spirit. If we walk wisely, we will make the most of our life. Consider these words. If we walk wisely, we'll make the most of our life. You see, a fool says there is no God and therefore lives as if he has no accountability to God or anyone for his actions and words. He thinks that if something feels good at the moment, then go ahead and do it regardless of the circumstances tomorrow. The wise, however, 
they realize that life is a gift. It's a gift from God. They make the most of their time. Making the most of your time is also sometimes translated as redeeming the time. Redeem the time. Buy up time. Invest in. Take advantage of all the seasons of our life for the glory of God. I don't know if you're a procrastinator, but procrastinators borrow on chance and find their hands empty at the end. The wise, however, they press on to faithfully complete and fulfill their God-given roles, responsibilities, their jobs, and their ministries. Every season of life is appointed by God. We are living in an appointed time. You're here today by divine appointment. He appoints both the day of prosperity, we are told in Ecclesiastes, as well as the day of adversity. In the day of adversity... We are to realize that this may be a new opportunity in disguise. In the day of prosperity, rejoice and make the most of it. Is this your day of prosperity? If it is, take full advantage of it. Enjoy it. Treasure it. Because tomorrow may be an appointed time. Of adversity. Now, the way Paul lived, he didn't waste any opportunity that came his way. I love that man. That man has so much wisdom that came by the Spirit's work in him. And he urges us, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all. Especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's how we redeem time. That's how we make the most of the season in which we're in. We take advantage of every opportunity to show love and to serve others while we can. A word of love. A word of affirmation. Not spoken today may be regretted that it wasn't spoken tomorrow. Forfeiting personal time today with your spouse because of an overcommitted calendar may haunt us later. We sit alone in a convalescent home. Rushing our children through every stage of life for our convenience may later be deeply lamented. Enjoy every stage of life of your kid. Don't leave undone or said what should be done or said today. A good pastoral friend of mine that I've known for a number of years um, lived, ministered in Chile was a pastor in the center of Los Angeles, 
in a very, very difficult part of the city. His home was broken into so many times that his family didn't know whether to just leave the door open or to try to put bars on it. And I remember some from our church went there to help them build a brick wall around the front part of the house. But it was very common for them to come into the home and find somebody in the home stealing their stuff and running out another door. He called me this week and he said, Pastor Don, I need to talk to you. He said, my wife has Alzheimer's. And she's in the mid-season of this terrible disease. He said, I just don't know what to do. What do I do? I'd like to go with you to uh, Peru. But I don't know whether I should be home. What do I do? Wow, I've been there, done that. My father had Alzheimer's. I've had a spouse that was in late stages of cancer and wondering what to do. So my only advice to him was take one day at a time and enjoy as much time as you can with your wife because she has diminishing capacities. She's quickly sliding into the abyss of her mind. You see, these are the days of our lives. Live every day for the glory of God. Because that's how we discover the joy that God intends for us, even in a day of adversity like my friends going through. As the apostle neared the end of his life, he could look back and say in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Could you say that today? Could I say that? My friends, how great that would be. How great that would be to finish life and say, I have no regrets because I kept the faith. I kept my faith in Christ to the end. As I near the finish line, life values and purposes become much clearer to me. There is so much unfinished work left to be done. And I want to do as much as I can. There are sermons to preach. Pastors to teach in other countries. 14 grandkids that need to be cheered on. And a wife to be enjoyed. While I still have life and breath. Um... This week I was given back a plaque. You can't read what it says, I'm sure. It was on the back of the pulpit that I was using and had for years. It was the motto for preaching for me. So I put it up here. 
for me this morning. And it'll be in my room to remind me as I finish the race that this is what I want to do. This is who I want to be. And what does it say? That they may see Christ. I put that on the back of my pulpit because that's the most important thing about who I am and what I do. It's not that you may see me. It's not that you might hear me. It's that you might see Christ. That's my goal. That's my ambition as I round the final lap of my race. I can see more clearly the finish line. I don't know how far or how long. But when you get this far, you keep saying, I'm getting closer. You see, that's how you invest your life. That's how you redeem the time. Is use every day as if it is a gift from God. And squeeze all of life you can out of that day. Because these are the days of our lives. And Paul's admonition to us should cause each of us this morning to ponder and ask ourselves, what are we living for? I got another thought. Not just what are you living for, what would be the question? Who? Who are you living for? You see, the unexamined life Leads us nowhere. Examine our lives to see what's most worthwhile and enduring. Pursue it with all of your mind. Now, what's the motivation for making the most of life? Well, Paul clearly tells us the motivation for making the most of each day is what? That the days are evil. Wow. What does Paul mean by that? When the Bible speaks about the days are evil, it refers to two harsh realities. The first harsh reality is that life on planet earth is cursed by sin and death. The heart of man is filled with insanity while pain and sickness affects us all. The second harsh reality is that our days are brief and they're numbered. There's one thing we all have in common here this morning. You know what it is? Birth and death. Two realities. We all live with that. So don't put off doing good when it can be done today because there may be no tomorrow. Invest your life today in things that can bring dividends in the future. Don't invest your life in things that have only diminishing returns. Pursue the day. Live intentionally. Run the race for the goal of seeing Christ. 
Now, Paul reiterates that warning about foolishness. He says, don't be foolish and understand and act upon God's will. It is senseless to know something is true and good, but not act upon it. It's foolish to know God's word, but live as if God had nothing to say. It's foolish to know God has a plan for our lives, but we insist on controlling and planning our own life that ultimately leads us astray. When we don't know the specifics of God's will for our life, <coughs> I can tell you with certainty what God's will in, generally, in general is. You know what it is? Purity. Pure and simple, purity. God's will is always our purity. That we abstain from sexual immorality. That we honor God by not taking advantage of others or defrauding others. That'd be a topic for another whole day. But you'll find it from the old through the new. And because God is infinitely good, whatever he ordains for us is what? Good. When he permits hardship, pain, and grief into our lives, we are to be confident That he is mysteriously working all things together for our good. Well, Paul, you said so much in such a short amount of time. If only we could walk wisely. Be careful where you walk. Walk intentionally. Walk in the light. Make the most of every day. Because days are fleeting and days are evil. Now we come to the second part of this text we have in Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. And let's read it. This, is, by the way, is not a morality text. <laughs> but it does relate to morality. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks once in a while. Oops, excuse me, I misread that. Giving thanks, how much? Giving thanks always and for everything. Give me a break. Always and for everything To God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There you see your church name in the text. The Spirit-filled life is the Spirit having more of us. I'm going to repeat that. The Spirit-filled life is the Spirit having more of us. We are exhorted, don't be drunk with wine. Why? He says it's dissipation or debauchery. Paul here is not commanding Christians not to drink wine. 
but warning them not to overindulge themselves until they get drunk. Instead, we are called to not be under the influence of the spirit that comes in a bottle, but to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us already. So why does Paul warn us against drunkenness? Well, he said it's dissipation or debauchery. Which means it can lead to incorrigible, riotous, excessive, out-of-control behavior as a result of over-drinking. Too much alcohol makes people vulnerable to an inhibited sinful desires and to the influence of others around them who have with, come to them with evil intent. Just a little side trail, side note as a pastor... After, let's see, more than 45 years, I could tell you that most of the debacles that I've seen in the church have resulted to substance abuse or alcohol of Christians. Hmm. You see, drunkenness dulls our legitimate inhibitions and our decision-making capacities. And the apostle was speaking against a destructive cultural phenomena in Ephesus. Not only was wine consumption a major problem in that city, but it was associated with idolatry. Bacchus, have you heard of that name before? Bacchus, the god of wine. Well, he was enshrined there in that city, in the uh, temple. And he in that temple stood for immorality and carnality in staggering proportions. So when Paul said, do not be drunk with wine, he's talking to a culture that is driven by this. In the Bible, wine is also called a mocker. Do you know what a mocker is? It's one who makes fun of someone. The Bible calls wine a mocker because it gives people a sense that they are in control when in fact they're not. Drunkenness has been the downfall of such biblical characters as Noah, Lot's daughters, numerous kings, and even some Christians in the city of Corinth who got drunk. Now take this, for heaven's sakes, in a church love feast, potluck dinner. I'd add the potluck. You say, how did that happen? Because they had a culture in that city that was brought right into the church and caused serious problems. Let me ask some questions. If our social life revolves around drinking, maybe it's time to stop and ask why. If our freedom to drink is a stumbling block to others, maybe it's time to stop and think of others. Paul therefore required elders and deacons not to be given to wine because they were to be an example to all. But he called all of us to a life of purity and sobriety in an impure, intoxicated culture. Now here's why I say it's not just a, a, a message here on morality. 
he's trying to show the contrast between being drunk with wine and being under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Rather than being drunk with wine, he's saying, keep being filled with the Spirit. Now, let me clarify something that has caused confusion in the church. Not necessarily this church, but churches. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a liquid. Being filled with the Spirit is not to be acquainted with some great experiential, emotional high or second blessing. The Spirit doesn't enter our lives one day and then sort of evaporate into the air the next so that we have to get another fix of the Spirit to get that love and feeling going again. Neither is it to be thought of as gaining more of the Spirit like filling up an empty glass with water. When we say, fill me with the Spirit, we need to understand what that means. And this is going to be a shocker to some. To some of you who have been on this treadmill. The Holy Spirit is already fully present in every Christian. I'm going to repeat that. The Holy Spirit is already fully present in every Christian. We never will receive more of the Holy Spirit in our lives than the day He first regenerated, baptized, and indwelt us. He is personal. He's not an impersonal spirit or commodity. There are no second-class Christians with only a few super-filled Christians having the Spirit. And... There we go. With only a few, if you would, Spirit-filled Christians running around while there are others of us muddle through the rest of our lives. That's not what it's about. Either you have the Holy Spirit or you don't. If anyone does not have the Holy Spirit, based on what the Scripture says, you're not a Christian. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. You have a person. You have God dwelling in you. The Holy Spirit is the permanent resident of every Christian. He has pledged and guaranteed our salvation. Once he has entered, he will not leave. He will not depart. He will get you to your designated home in heaven. Paul commands us to keep being filled with the Spirit. That means we are to continually surrender the control of our lives to Christ. And then he fills up the void within us with his power. When we call out to the Lord to fill us, We are asking the Spirit to have full sway of our thoughts, emotions, and will. Remember the song we sing? Lord, I give my life to you, my will, my hands, my whole body. That's it. 
being filled with the Spirit is the work of God. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is, using, is yielding all we are to Him so that He can do all He wants in us. I'm going to repeat that. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is yielding all we are to Him so that He can do all He wants through us. This is our participation in the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. So being filled with the Spirit is having more, Him having more of us and not us having more of Him. Is that understood? It's He wants more of us. When you say, fill me, Lord, with your Spirit, and He's saying, sure, <laughs> yield. Surrender, obey, and I'll move right on into those areas of your life. Let me take over. The demonic world loves to possess and destroy. The Holy Spirit loves to possess and gives us life and power, purpose. It's impossible to live the Christian life without the power of the Holy Spirit. God will never call us to be or to do something that he won't first provide the resources to fulfill that call. And that resource is the Holy Spirit. As he fills us, he produces spiritual fruit like love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the Spirit-filled life. No work of man can produce this kind of disposition. No work of man can produce that kind of character. Only Christ can by means of his spirit. God has filled our lives with all spiritual blessings. Certainly he has done an amazing work in each of us. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is using, yielding all we are to Him so that He can do all He wants through us. And the Spirit-filled life begins to overflow in relationships, but also in our worship. And He says, by speaking to one another. And that's another way of saying, encourage one another in the worship of Christ. For example, the early church developed hymnody and liturgy that encouraged corporate worship. The congregation sang together like a choir with antiphonal response. Someone would lead the singing and the congregation repeated or responded with exhortations that came from biblical truths like this. Jesus is Lord of all. And <laughs> Thank you. We should do that more often. Jesus is Lord of all, and the people would respond, May he rule my life. Jesus is the Lord of all. May he rule my life. In this way, not only was God worshipped, but it also brought the church together. 
We're participants together. We're not observers. Worship, therefore, is the joyful engagement of our hearts and minds in glorifying God. We are to speak to one another, he said, in psalms. Those are Old Testament psalms that often were accompanied by musical instruments. James, the brother of our Lord, said in James 5.13, he asked two rhetorical questions and gave us two amazing answers. Is anyone among you suffering? What do you do? Pray. Is anyone cheerful? What do you do? Let him sing psalms. We are to speak to one another in hymns. These were worship songs taken from or alluded to in a biblical text. They were weighty songs characterized by God-exalting Bible doctrine. We know that Jesus did sing hymns and the apostles did. In Matthew 26, as they left the upper room, it says that they sang hymns. Matthew 26, 30. The church also worshipped together singing spiritual songs. Now these were more spontaneous praise songs with sacred lyrics, yet not trite Self-focused, repetitive choruses. The overflow of the Spirit is evident when we sing and make melody out of our heart to the Lord. You see, worship is the overflow of our joy. These songs were sung with a melody line that carried the lyrics along rather than interfering or competing with the words of the song. You see, it wasn't about the music, it was about the words. In other words, the musical ponus of worship should be to promote the message and not become the defining message. These worship songs were intended to give expression to what was in the heart. They were to be sung passionately and meaningfully, God is not pleased with either cold, heartless, dull worship or with trite, repetitious, upbeat tunes intended to stir up our emotions to give us an experiential high. Hmm. You see, worship is not to be measured by our emotional response. It's not about our emotional experience, but rather by what pleases God. Remember, God is the audience. We are the worshipers. We're the choir. Our songs are to be directed to Him and to be worthy of Him. And the Spirit-filled life also flows with gratitude for everything. <laughs> wow, this, when I get to this kind of stuff here, when you can say everything, always, Pastors really never really get to go there except when it's in the text. Hmm. Paul exhorts the church at Thessalonica Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will in Christ Jesus for you. 
Our capacity to worship God is in direct proportion to our gratitude for Christ. Regardless of our circumstances. Because there's always reason to rejoice in Christ. Always. A thankless people are a self-consumed glory robbers. This is what God-exalting worship is to be like. To believe when our eyes are filled with tears and our hearts are broken with grief that we can rejoice that God is good and give Him thanks for how He has blessed us with so many spiritual blessings. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Rather than counting all the things that you've lost. The spirit-filled life overflows with reverent awe of God as we willingly submit to one another. And you say, how did Paul ever get to that? Giving thanks always in everything. Your heart flooding over with worship. I get it. But where there's a spirit-filled life, there's a willingness to submit to one another. That's kind of the test of whether this is true. I mean, it's one thing to sit in here and worship and praise God, and it's another, I'm going to be really straightforward with you, it's another thing to submit to the authorities of the church. Told you, this stuff's tough. Paul just hit at the very heart of our life. You see, a spirit-filled life submits to God first and foremost. And then believes that God works through human authorities to accomplish his will. Submission is finding our proper place in the order of things. And believing God works through authority to accomplish his purposes. Where we find ourselves in the chain of command is not a reflection of our worth. If you're at the top of the command, it doesn't mean you're worthy, more worthy than the one who is the servant, the one who carries out the work. God has ordained that his work is accomplished through appointed authorities of government, organizations, churches, businesses, and families. Submission is a way of understanding that God is sovereign. For example, Hebrews 13, 17 exhorts the church, Obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. And here's the other side of it. For that would be of no advantage to you. Is this a spirit-filled church? Am I a spirit-filled pastor? 
If so, I will show by my submission to God-ordained authorities. And our capacity to submit to legitimate God-ordained authority is in direct proportion to our understanding of how God's will and grace work through those in authority over us. Submission is ultimately the subordination of our wills to Christ and his word. Submission to one another, however, is not blind obedience. We are to prayerfully rest in God's sovereignty and prayerfully to resist any authority that requires us to do that which is contrary to moral conscience or in opposition to biblical truth. We are to give to Caesar said Jesus, those, he's talking about those in authority, the things that are theirs, and to Christ the things that are his, believing that he works through authorities to accomplish his purpose. Your boss, he's a jerk. Somehow, some way, God can work through him. God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ. Do you believe that's true? One such essential blessing is the Holy Spirit. We are promised not only his miraculous power, but himself. Being filled by the Holy Spirit is yielding all we are to him so he can do all he wants through us. The Holy Spirit has made himself fully available to us. You'll never receive more of the Holy Spirit than the day you came to Christ. So they're not the haves and the have-nots. We're all the haves. If you're a Christian. Take advantage of it. Walk wisely. Ask God to take your life. Ask God to fill every area of your life. To yield your will, yield your plans, yield your passions to him. And you know what? And then you will find joy. Sounds contrary, doesn't it? Give yourself to God. Pick up your cross daily and follow him. Doesn't sound like fun to me. And yet, it is in that process where you find purpose where you find joy my prayer for us this morning is that you may be filled with the Holy Spirit as you make the most of every day God gives you let's not waste our lives let's not waste our time instead let's invest them in that which is most worthwhile and enduring As your interim pastor, that's my ambition. Write what you see. Let's not waste our lives. Let's invest them in that which is most worthwhile and enduring. Today's the day we have. You can't give God tomorrow. I've heard people say, give God your tomorrows. You don't have a tomorrow to give him. But you can give him what? Today. Therefore, 
as we have opportunity, let us do good to all. Especially to those of the household of faith. And who would that be? Us. One another. Start here. Start in the home. Start in the church. Let the world see what it's like to be spirit-filled. Not driven by the flesh. Hmm. Put this on your forehead. (laughs) Put this on your heart. That they may see Christ. In your home, in your work, at church, wherever you go. If you do that, your life will be recognized. Your life will be distinct. And you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Thanks, Father, for hearing us this morning of our great need for you. Without you, we can do nothing. We don't even want to attempt to do something without you. Use your word this morning to give us hope, to bring us joy. Father, may you fill our lives as we yield to you, as we submit to you, as we give over control of our life and our destiny to you. To let you take us wherever you want. To make us whatever you want. Father God, we thank you for the ministry of your spirit. You have given us the greatest gift you could ever, ever give us. And that is yourself. Thank you for the spirit that resides in each of your people. If there is someone here this morning who does not know you, may they call upon your name. May they confess Jesus Christ as Lord and they shall be saved. Father, give them the faith even to believe. There may be those here this morning who have been running their own lives, been walking unwisely, stumbling in the darkness. If there be anyone here this morning like that, God, I pray that your spirit will come alongside, convict them of their sin, and then quickly assure them of your love and your grace. Father God, we need to know that your grace is more than sufficient for every day to meet every challenge. Your grace is greater than our sin. We praise you for that. Bless the day. May we make the most of it for your glory. And in so doing, Find the joy that you intend for us. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Why don't we stand?